Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week, I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. In today's episode, I'm in conversation with Shital Sheth, who is an award-winning Indian-American actress, author, producer, child of immigrants, someone who values justice and fairness, and much more. When I asked Shital what cancer has taught her, she says that she feels deeply fortunate. Cancer's terrible, there's no doubt about it. But in this conversation, Shital brings to light ways in which we can reframe terrible situations that life throws at us. Being a cancer survivor is just one layer of Shital. Part of her life's work has been to demonstrate how multidimensional we all are, and that we cannot be put into just one box or be labeled as one thing. And just one of the ways that Shital has brought this to life has been through her children's book, Always Angelina which is the first children's book where an Indian-American girl is the hero and where the cliche Indian cultural themes are not the main focus of the story. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, we unpack her experiences of being raised in a traditional Indian household while living in America, the differences in how she is raising her children versus how she was raised, her struggles early on as an actress where she literally lost jobs for refusing to anglicize her name, and we talk about much more. I truly enjoyed this fascinating conversation with Shital, and I hope you do too. So, without further ado, I bring you Shital Seth. Shital, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm okay. Thank you for having me. Thank you for reaching out. It's my pleasure. I'm really excited to be talking to you because there's just so much that you do in terms of the work that you embrace produce, and then share with the world. So I think we're going to have a really interesting conversation in terms of how you got into the space that you're in and how you kind of perceive the world. But the one thing I like to ask my guests is, is a, is a way of kind of starting our conversation is to ask you in your own words, how do you define who you are? First of all, I want to say thank you for even having these conversations. When you reached out, I was intrigued and I thought, oh, this is such a really always necessary kind of conversations to be having. But I think in light of the world, I think it's even more important and relevant and also good for our souls, you know, to kind of reflect and also think about these things for ourselves. And so I actually have not been asked that question ever. And so I was thinking about it. And I think for me, it has to just come down to the things that I believe in, the values that I have, which are very much informed by being a woman being a child of immigrants, being an Indian. India is my heritage, this is the country that I hail from, being a mother. You know, all of those things, I think, as a whole, kind of make up the way I look at the world. Yeah. What I'm hearing you say is that these are the filters in which you use to kind of see the world, right? These are the filters in which you use to kind of show up for the world. But what's also really curious is that these elements of you that you just shared with us are in some sense what the world sees, but not simultaneously. So what I'm saying is the world is not able to see you in your wholeness, in your complexity. It may be able to see you, but one element of you. And if you're lucky, two elements of you at the same time. And so this is something that you keenly think about because of your work as an actress, right? Yeah. I mean, the indus- the entertainment industry for sure very much wants to put you in a box. They want to be able to say, oh, she's that and put 
a very simple label on you and then put you in that box. And if you were to kind of come out of that box, then they don't know what to do with you or it's harder or wait, 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 what are they doing? What, I, I, we don't know them as that person. And so it's definitely the, the multi-layered facets that we all are are very difficult to live um, and breathe and embody when you are, you know, a commodity, which is very much what an actress is. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So how do you, um, how do you think about that? You know, it's interesting. I have a very, since I was very young and my parents talk about this too with me all the time, I have a very innate, strong sense of justice and fairness and, that's very much a, a big part of what defines me. And since I was little, I've always been very much like, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. That's not fair. And so when I started acting and was in the industry, a lot of that kind of the way the business worked was very counterintuitive to the way that I look at the world and the way that I want to live in the world, because it's very unfair. It is not merit based. They have, you know, there's a lot of rules that don't work for someone like me. And so I had to kind of find a way to carve my own path and figure out what I was willing to compromise on. And there was a lot of of places on the way that I had to make big decisions that for, you know, whatever reason, there's pros and cons to all of them I chose. and, And this is where I am today. Would it be accurate then to say that fairness is the thing that drives you? Like, what is the thing that drives you and the thing that kind of shows up in your work repeatedly, whether it's you know, in your filmography or in your production of films or even in your, even in the book that you've written, right? And so Mm -hmm. what's the thing that kind of drives you that surfaces most of the time? The truth. It's all about the truth. It's all about giving space to narratives and people that are never giving space to and showing them that they are equally worthy and that they deserve to take up as much space as all of the people before them. And so sharing the truth of people's kind of stories and all of my work, some of it's based on real life stories, some of it isn't, but they all are driven from the narratives of of which I don't find that people give us enough space to. That's really curious. So, you know, a lot of what you do in particular, your work in understanding and or better kind of bringing this idea of representation to the forefront of your work. Yes. Whether it's, you know, in the idea of a theme or character or narrative in many of the films that you've played in, I'm kind of curious to unpack this idea of, is there a sense of freedom and being the first in all these different things? And then also too, what was it like to hold a sense of responsibility for normalizing the other and or the difference that you represent? I was really naive when I started out. You know, I went to school for acting. I went to Tisch, which is an amazing school at NYU, and was very much in a bubble. And as much as I loved the training that I got, it did not prepare me for the business in the way that it really operates. And so when I graduated, I couldn't believe the conversations that I was having on a regular basis in just trying to get work or at an audition or even when I was meeting with representatives. I talk about this a lot, but and so people might be tired of hearing this story, but I was asked to change my name so many times 
to the point where I lost jobs because I refused to. And there, there, for example, that was one of my truths that I was not willing to compromise on. You know, others have. I have no judgment on that. But for me, it was really important to stay authentic and to be me, like to not just do my work as my, as who I am and to kind of anglicize it or make a quote easier for somebody, um, was not my job. And again, it was a sense of fairness and feeling really angry that this was something that I was having to deal with that others weren't. And I lost jobs because of it, which again, emboldened me even more. And so I was told by many representatives that I would not work because of my name. And I hear lots of stories of people who did change their name, who got a lot of work because their name was easier or anglicized or something that people were comfortable around. And I know, you know, because I lost jobs, literally was told to my face, if you don't change your name, we can't hire you. That's something that was the impetus for me to start writing, to producing, because I thought this is insanity. This is absolute insanity. And by the way, it, it, it's so ironic because we seem to learn lots of names if we want to. We know we've certainly learned Galifianakis and Timothy Chalamet and Michelangelo and Dostoevsky. I mean, there's lots of things that we all are perfectly comfortable learning. So what is it? Why, why, why is it so hard when you see this brown person in front of you that gives you an idea of what you imagine that person to be that you're not comfortable with, you know? And so for me, it's very much about keeping things authentic. And from the beginning, that was always something I would not compromise on. The idea of not compromising, not sacrificing, not giving up the thing that you believe to be true. Yeah. But then at the same time, what did that feel like to hold that sense of responsibility because you felt, I mean, nobody else was doing it. There was a pull there for you to kind of maintain. So I like. I I definitely struggled with it because there were days where, you know, it was rough. You know, I didn't have the money to pay rent. And I would think if I could just do A, B, and C, I could be so-and-so or I could have that opportunity. But I, I will tell you, the, the idea of responsibility because I grew up knowing the privilege that I had by being born in this country very much defined the way I lived. And so I took it seriously. I took the responsibility. It's not something I shunned away from. And I know some people say that they're like, oh, I don't want to be somebody who has to carry that weight. But for me, I, I don't think that, I think it's a really amazing thing to be able to share space and share stories that aren't often told. Now, I don't think that anyone can speak for any one group of people, period, ever. There's layers and nuance, and there should be as many stories about people who look like me than they are about every white person out there. And we should have as many stories that allow us to wash our hands for a while or walk our dog for a while. Everything doesn't have to be so heavy and the narratives don't have to be so fraught with identity or, you know, other things. It should just be us being people, being normal. And that is something that I very much fight for in all the stuff that I do is why can't we just be a person like everybody else? Um, we don't always have to be associated with other things because that becomes the otherizing of us. And I think very much is something that you see when the things that you see that are being greenlit and are being made, it's centered in the things that they are comfortable seeing us in with a religious layer, with a mythology, with some kind of 
of exotic component, arranged marriage. Like that's the stuff that they are comfortable with when it comes to us because they see it very much with that white lens. And so my my thing is like if I get one more script with something like that, I'm going to lose my mind. I mean, I get so many of them and I don't do them because I have no interest in perpetuating that. You brought up something really interesting. It's this idea of holding a sense of responsibility because you were born in this country. So let's talk about that. How does that how does that differ then from the way in which your parents kind of show up in the world versus how you show up in the world? And how does that, how are they similar? And then how is that kind of different? And then why is it different? I would say, I mean, my parents and I are very, very different. And I think that comes from the fact that I um, had the privilege of being born in a country that allows for the freedoms that we have. But I feel very fortunate to have had a foundation of a very traditional culture behind me. Now, there are a lot of problems with that culture and with the kind of old guard nonsense that they spew, especially about women. And even when I was very little, I would push back on a lot of that and ask questions and be like, but that doesn't make sense. And why? And why can't I? What What do you mean I can't do that? Or why can't a woman? You know, and there's a lot of things that I realized that my parents did not even have the opportunity to question because where they came from, you just do, you just kind of follow along. You listen to your parents. You're just trying to get food on the table. There was no luxury of unpacking anything because they just didn't even have the time wherewithal or, you know, there's just no way that philosophy, someone who can kind of spend time doing that has to have the time to do that. And my parents were just trying to get food on the table and have a job. Like they didn't have time for anything else. And so now we'll have these conversations where my parents are like, oh my God, why is everything? Just like, you know, in the way that I raise my children, it has been interesting to kind of talk about that, you know, in the sense of like, I want them to have an innate sense of questioning and asking the whys, whereas my parents were very much like, just do it. Like we don't even have, and I get it, you know, it's interesting. I I think about like how much time I spend with my kids talking about, you know, they call it SEL, social emotional learning, which is a huge component. Like I am not worried about my kids learning how to read, learning math, learning like the basics. What I am more concerned about is making them whole, aware, kind people that are feeling some justice into the world and wanting to be a part of that. And that takes time and that takes conversation. And my parents did not have the luxury of talking to me about my feelings. They didn't, they couldn't teach me how to handle situations. They didn't teach me how to like, well, if that happened with your friend, this is what you can do. This is how you can talk about it. Oh, look at what's happening with that person. Let's, let's figure out how to handle that situation. That was nothing. Like I had zero of that growing up. It's amazing that I've been able to put two words together with people, but I I don't hold them. That is, that's just because they didn't have the time or the luxury of being, I feel like that should be as important as everything else, but we do not teach our kids these things. And I wish we did because I think it makes a really big difference. And I think you see it, you see it in our youth. Like people do not, and now they're on their screens more and computers, which only compound the problem, but they are unable to connect, to to have conversations, to have healthy civic discourse. And I think it's important to be able to teach our kids to do that. I think that's all absolutely true. But I think what's really curious about somebody in your space where you now have, is it two daughters? Mm -hmm. You now have two daughters that you're trying to 
teach these lessons of being emotionally intelligent and trying to be better. And so you're in this space between them and your parents who are just quite literally, in some sense, they're programmed to think a certain way, right? And no matter how hard you try, it's hard to kind of shift their thinking in certain ways in, in terms of how you would love them to be or want them to be. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm really kind of curious to to kind of talk to you about is how do you strike that balance? Because there's goodness that comes from our parents. Even from my background, I come from Afghanistan, which is very much traditionalistic in the sense of you know specified gender roles and the role of religion and the role of the role of our ancestors and how they define us but what's really interesting is how do we extract the goodness and then also extract the goodness from what it means to be in a culture where critical thinking is valued and kind of have our children quite literally have both right have the best of both worlds how do you kind of strike that balance yeah well, I think the nice part of it is that my parents are retired now, and so they can just be grandparents. And I so love the connection that my kids have with them. I mean, I my grandparents were in India when I was a child, and they all died fairly early in my life. So I spent, I mean, we did spend summers in India, three to four months of the year, every couple years. So I have a lot of fond memories of them, but it's completely different that my parents are just two hours away. And, you know, even at the height of COVID, because I was still going through cancer treatment, we moved in with them because I had to be really careful. And so we lived with my parents for almost four months and they were extremely involved in my kids' lives. And because they're retired, they can just be grandparents, you know, and, and I can, and it's interesting because especially the religious kind of stuff that comes into play you know, I want my kids to be exposed to everything. So I let my parents kind of do what they want to do and, and teach my kids and, and very much the cultural aspects of them, of that I like. But I also make it very clear to my kids that you will have a choice. And this is what Nana and Nani believe. And a lot of people believe this. And a lot of people, and I tell them what there's lots of different ways of looking at things. And you will be able to make up your own mind about that. But this is what Nana and Nani believe. And then they'll say, well, what do you believe? And I said, you need to figure out what you believe. I'm not going to, because they always like end up modeling what we say. And so I, I try really hard to just give them information and let them develop it for themselves. I mean, even now it's been interesting because with everything going on in the political climate and I'm such a, you know, kind of political junkie and involved in a lot of outreach on that regard, my oldest has taken quite an interest in civics in general. And I actually went and got some books that kind of laid out what democracy was and she wants to hear about it and she wants to ask me what who am I voting for and why and she wrote a letter to my parents are from Pennsylvania so they're in a swing state and she's writing letters as for why she thinks people should vote for Biden and you know I didn't I just said she's like mommy tell me about Trump and tell me about Biden so I told her a little bit and it's so I love how simple it is for kids you know when she's like well that's Trump sounds like somebody who lies a lot and cheats and steals and isn't fair and she literally was like how is he president <laughs> and I'm like that's a really good question so it's it's nice like it makes me really happy that they're even thinking about that you know my 3 year old not so much but um my 6 year old is very much loving the conversations and ask me questions all the time. And I have to really think about how I kind of express it because I also don't want to kind of 
emotionalize it. And, you know, I really want to give her the facts so she can kind of determine for herself and hopefully reach the conclusion that, you know, is meant to, to be reached. That's such interesting insight. So I'm wondering this idea of curiosity that your daughter has with you and in some sense that you had growing up. Do you talk about it quite little in those terms with your kids? Like, I want you to be curious. I want you to ask questions. I want you to engage. You quite literally try to instill that value in them? Yeah. That's great. Well, I'll say, I'll say to them, I'll just say, I love that you're asking me so many questions. Like last night, you know, we read a book, actually a book about um, women who try to secure the, the right to vote. And my, and my six-year-old picked it out because I bought a bunch of books. I put them in there and I was like, you go pick one. And she picked that one. And she said, what, what is this book about? And I told her, I said, it's about there was a time when women were not allowed to vote and she couldn't believe it. And so she had all these questions and, and then we went through the book and, you know, she saw that a lot of these women were put in jail and she said, am I going to go to jail if I do something? And I had, and the conversation quite literally was, I said, some, just because they're laws doesn't mean that they're right. And some of the, some laws are not fair and some laws need to be changed. And so that was the conversation of last night, you know, cause she's like, well, I thought rules were there because they're supposed to help people. I go some, but not all of them. And, and she kept asking, and I said, I, and I literally was like, it's time to go to sleep. I love that you're asking me all these questions. We can continue tomorrow. I promise you all of those questions will still be there tomorrow. But she's very, very, very curious about kind of all of that. Now, as you talk about your daughter, it reminds me of your book, Always Anjali. So I'd like to talk about the catalyst for why you decided to write this children's book and whether or not your daughters have read it and in some sense, if Anjali represented who you were growing up. So Anjali came from when I was pregnant with my first, so about seven years ago, and because she's six, and I was spending a lot more time in bookstores and just reading children's books because I wanted to kind of curate a library for them. And very much like the rest of media, was really disheartened and dismayed by what I was finding. I'm like, this is the best we have. And if there were books that centered stories of people of color, again, it was religious or it was about a holiday or it was about kind of extraordinary things, you know, like a big event. I can't tell you how many Diwali books I would find. And I'm like, okay, life isn't about this. That's not the only thing that, you know, we have. And, and if we cannot see ourselves as the hero of our own story, not even the side characters, what are we telling our kids? And so um, that was the impetus for me writing and wanting to create a book series, which has never been done for this age group with a, you know, Indian American girl as the hero of the story. And I wanted, and it's going to be a series. I just signed a deal to do more books, which is exciting. And the next one will be out next year. And it will be her dealing with things as an American child would with parents who are, you know, again, hail from India. But again, that doesn't define who she is. It's not something that she's struggling with, you know, in, in, in an everyday way. Again, I wanted to just see a family be normal. And what would that look like? And, um, so it was very much a lot of me and my friends and everything that I dealt with growing up that filtered into her as I've been writing, my kids love, love getting kind of first dibs at the stuff I'm writing. Cause I have a few other books that have also been written that aren't the Anjali books, but they're other books. And so they're an amazing focus group. I read it to them and they tell me if they love or hate it and anything in between. And, um, they've got great ideas. I, I'm in like a perfect 
world right now of a three and a six year old of really being able to give me feedback on, on, on what I want to be writing and, and I get great ideas for them. So it's been really fun. Yeah, I think it's great. I hope that they don't even have to think about the fact that like for me, like in our home, and they're living in a bubble, I guess, in my home because the books reflect the world. Every every book that's on their shelf has been personally picked by me. And so they are books about lots of different people from lots of different backgrounds doing lots of different things. And so it is the world as we live it. And so I hope that they never have to wonder what it's like, you know, not having access to that. But that is something that I make a point to do. And I know that some people don't have the ability to do that. No, I think that's so wonderful. What an absolute privilege for for your daughters, for young girls. And I think what you're doing is amazing. And so I'd like to pivot here, Shital, and ask you, as it pertains to the work that you do, as well as the book that you've just written and the series that you plan on writing, what is the role of story in your life? What is the story that you tell yourself? And how does it kind of show up for you and affect you in various ways? It's an interesting question. I think that the story you tell yourself very much can either become a self-fulfilled prophecy or lead you, and it could be a negative or a positive, right? And I think that a lot of us hold on to narratives sometimes that don't serve us. And so it's really important to break those narratives and tell us, we can tell ourselves whatever story we want. There's, we have our ability to look at things and the point of view we have on what happened to us is up to us. So again, are you a victim of something or are you someone that like, it's interesting. I heard Ava DuVernay say something that really connected to me where she said, I just changed my language to, I have to go do this, this, and this too. I get to go do this, this, and this. And so that for me became really big about the way I look at life and even the rest of my, of my kind of childhood. Like I had of course, I had a lot of stuff that I would have loved to have been different, but I am who I am because of it. And so I'm so grateful for all of it. And I know that I'm luckier than most. I know that I have privilege, even when I know compared to others, I don't. I still know very much inherently the fact that I'm able to even talk to you about these things is something that um, is a privilege. And so this idea of framing things in your life like saying, I get to go do this. I get to go pick up my daughter. I get to read her a book every night. I get to go write a story. I get to go work for a few hours. I get all of that as opposed to, oh, I have to get that done. Oh, I have to to go get the kids. I have to go make dinner. I have to like, no, actually you get to go do that. So how are you going to look at that? You know? And so that has really been helpful for me, especially, you know, obviously I had Cancer, you know, in the last couple of years has been very uh, fraught and has risen a ton of questions about mortality and the way I look at the world in a whole other way. Um, but that small shift has made a huge difference for me. No, I think that's um, it's quite literally the power of language and how we can implement language to essentially change the way we think about the world, which actually then changes the way we show up for the world. Yes, yes. Exactly. And so what I would love to talk to you then about, Shital, is how your cancer has kind of changed the way you see yourself. I want to kind of fold it into this idea of how you show up in front of the camera too, based on who you were and how you are now. So I'm curious to know how that's kind of changed for you, how cancer in your life has changed how you think of yourself. I feel very uh, lucky 
I feel that it could have gone a very different way for me. And I seen, you know, since my diagnosis, I have, you know, I have a support group. And so I have a lot of friends within the cancer community. And so, and I've been to more funerals in the last two years than anyone should at my age. I literally said to my husband that I'm like, how am I going to another funeral? You know, it's, and so I feel very, very, very lucky. And even so, that's one part, the prognosis. But even when I was going through it, at the worst of the days and the worst of the chemo and the worst of, you know, I had a double mastectomy and then I had chemo for a very long time and then I had another set of treatments. So there was a lot for like a year and a half. And I just finished, and I was in treatment when COVID hit, which I wrote about, which is that CNN piece that came out. And so it really, but I feel like even in the worst of my days, I am so grateful that I was healthy going into it because I do believe that the fact that I, you know, because you, you, you question everything. You're like, what's the point? Like, I've been plant-based for since I was 14 years old. I exercise. I take care of myself. Like, I, on paper, I'm doing, I'm like, I'm, I'm okay. Like, I'm doing the right things. And then you think, and then you still get cancer. Not that anyone should get cancer, but I'm like, so what it, So what does it even matter? Why am I doing that? And then I realized that in the worst of my days, thank God I was healthy. Thank God I was taking care of myself because it could have been a lot worse. And I see it. I see it in other people who have had much tougher treatments and recoveries because their bodies were not as healthy as, you know, as they could have been perhaps, you know? And so... Overall, when it comes to anything that has to do with the cancer, I just feel very lucky. Now, it is definitely a mind trip um, that I have to really train myself on, and I'm still working on it in terms of the rest of my life. You know, a lot of my stuff got postponed because of COVID, and I just saw my doctors about a month ago. And so now the next stage of it, which they said is much harder, is the survivorship of that and figuring out how to live your life not worried about it coming back and how do you live your life not worrying about like every cold possibly being cancer or every pain or every this because I have the type of cancer that was aggressive and we think we got it all but it could come back you know and and I again I know so many people who are good for five years or ten years and then it's back and then it's back you know and so for me it is work every day to not lose my mind and to just stay present, vigilant, take care of myself, but also not let it, I'm not going to let it define me. There's no way I can't, you know, so like if it's not going to get me now and if it's there another time, then I'll deal with them. But like, I'm not going to let it take away any part of my life. It's great to hear that tone of, of strength in your voice as you kind of share that. The one thing that cancer's taught me because cancer quite literally affects everybody. If we don't have it, we know somebody that's had it that we love. Yeah. And so the thing that cancer has taught me, as treacherous as it is, it's taught me that we still have time with the ones that we love. And I say this from a place of being a combat interpreter where people in the context of battle and war die right away. And so there's no way to kind of make peace with the people that we love. And so the light and the darkness as it pertains to cancer and the way I've kind of experienced it, 
mm-hmm. is somebody who's lost a best friend to cancer, was that it gives you time to kind of at least be with them, whether it's six months or a year as they're going through chemo. And I think that's the one thing that people often forget. And gosh, I mean, cancer's terrible. There's nothing good about it. Mm-hmm. Except this idea, if you if you frame it just a little different, you can find the goodness in those moments as a person's kind of dealing with it. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm wondering one if that resonates with you at all, and and also two, you know, what has cancer quite literally taught you? Well, if anything, it has given me more questions. I feel less sure of everything than I have ever had. I've never been one to believe. The whole things happen for a reason. It makes me crazy when I hear that. It doesn't make sense to me. It does not connect with me. But I also very much always want the why of everything. <laughs> and again, sense of like just some grounding. And so it's, if anything, it has taught me to realize that is, there is actually so much that I can't control and that life is actually very random and things don't happen for a reason most of the time. And so... I have so many questions that I don't think I'll ever have the answers to. So I'm just kind of trying to do what I can every day to, again, leave the world a little bit better, a little bit happier, and especially for my kids and and myself, because there's a lot of life to still live. Yeah. And I I think that's a beautiful way to understand your existence now. It's quite humbling. But in that idea and in that space of being humbled, there's still strength in that because in the interactions that you have with your children, with your parents, with your loved ones, you can still shine that light of, you know, I'm here, let's enjoy this moment. And, you know, this pertains to your life, but I think what's really important in terms of like how we're talking about this conversation in the grand scheme of things is, if anything, COVID has taught this about us, right? So as somebody who lives in America, Americans are very aspirational. We think about the future and we always want to achieve more. But as a result, we get lost in the present moment. We get we, we get taken from it, right? We get taken from it. And so it's beautiful to hear you talk about how you have control over these these interactions and the way you kind of engage and the way you kind of think about these interactions and how you quite literally leave a person because life is random. You may never see them again. And so that's a wonderful reminder that be present and then also just be cognizant of how you show up in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if if anything kind of comes to the surface as you kind of think about mortality and the present moment and survivorship and all that stuff. I mean, I always think about my friend. So my roommate of many years after I graduated college just a couple years older than me, died of a very, very rare cancer a few years ago. And it happened very quickly. I literally got a text from one of her friends saying, come to the hospital. And I was like, okay. And and she died that week. And she had been in the hospital for only for two weeks. And then they realized what it was. They couldn't do anything. It was such a rare, rare thing. And it happened very quickly. And she died that quickly. Gosh. And her mom, I think about a lot because so it's such a sad thing. Her sister, like 15 years before, had died and her father had died. So her mom literally had to see both of her children and her husband 
die. And she leaves behind this boy who I share a birthday with. And so we've always had this 10-year-old boy. And I think about her every day because it was so fast. And, you know, I call her mom periodically just to check up on her. And it's those little things that matter. You know, the fact there's like three or four of her friends Whenever I call her mom, she's like, thank you. You know, she's just so grateful to hear from her kids' friends because we care and and we love her. And I can't even imagine what it's like. And it makes her feel connected to her daughter at least a little bit. And, you know, she she's lost her whole family. And so I, I think about um, the little things that we can do every day that make such a difference. There's no such thing as something too little. And I would just kind of offer that to anybody listening is just, you know, you have the ability in the smallest of ways, whether it is even given a smile to somebody, I know we're all wearing masks now, but in general, that's the point, you know, it's the little things that, that really matter. And so that is one of those promises I made to myself of like, please just keep checking up on, you know, her mom and other people in my life. Um, that I meet, whether it be strangers or people that I know, maybe you can be the goodness that they have that day, you know? I love that. Shital, as we come up, as we uh, kind of wrap up our conversation, I like to kind of finalize by asking one more question. And um, it's this, what's your message for the world? I, you know, I go back to that Emerson quote about leaving things a little bit better than before, but more than that, to feel as if you've lived, you know, a life full of integrity one that you can look back on and, and feel good about, you know, one that is one of truth and honor really to everyone that's come before you and what you want to leave in the world. Chantal, thank you for your work and uh, thank you for being the light in the darkness. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Stories of Transformation podcast. This podcast is produced by Dana Drahos. Audio Engineering by Joe Genjemi. Marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esor. If you love Stories of Transformation, you can help more people find us by leaving a review and sharing the episodes far and wide. We're grateful for all your support. And on behalf of the Stories of Transformation team, I'd like to say thank you. Okay, see you next time.